Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Uh, today's guest is Thomas B. Roberts, PhD, uh, Professor Emeritus of Educational Psychology at Northern Illinois University, and he's got an almost 50-year career studying psychedelics. He's presented around the world on consciousness, psychedelic science, and has been one of the founding members of MAPS. And if you're a longtime listener, you know I've had uh, Rick Doblin on for MAPS as well. So we're gonna delve deep into the world of psychedelics altered states and to this concept of something called mind apps that uh, Thomas has come up with, and uh, my, and even mind design, which is the idea of technology that lets you decide how you want your mind to work. You know, as the father of biohacking, I kind of am interested in this sort of stuff. Any way you can make your mind do what you want, that's controlling your biology. So, without any further introduction, other than you know, one of the the elders of the movement around psychedelics and spirituality, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So 50 years of looking at this stuff, uh, what, what was the impetus? I mean, you were there with Stan Groff, who's also been on the show, by the way, uh, you know, and Albert Hoffman, the, the early fathers. But what? just tell me a story. Tell me, how did you get started in this field? Because it was not a field when you did it. Well, I was a graduate student at the University of Connecticut in the 1960s, and that's when Leary was having all his problems at Harvard. And it was just sort of a news background noise to me, but I was curious about it because I'm interested in psychology and the human mind. So I sent up to Harvard and got a copy of the Harvard Review that had an article by him or about him. And that was sort of interesting, but it was, again, it was background noise. Then in 1967, I went to graduate school to, at Stanford to start my doctorate. That was the summer when the song, When You Go to San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Some Flowers in Your Hair, was on the radio. Now, that wasn't for me, but it was sort of just fun to imagine this sort of, you know, in the background, because I was going to Stanford to get a doctorate and an MBA on the side. So the hippiness was not something I was interested in, except as background in entertainment. But at Stanford, I started my dissertation on Maslow's Needs Hierarchy. And there was a guy named Willis Harmon who had a, a class called Human Potential, and he had studied Maslow. So I thought I should have a class with him. Now, it was so popular, it was called a graduate special. You had to sign up for it in advance, and I had to wait two quarters to get on the waiting list to get into the class. And when I got in, you know, they were discussing, discussing real fringy stuff like meditation and Eastern religions and chanting and all the stuff that if you talked about that in university, people sort of roll their eyes or raise their eyebrows and think that guy's kind of gone beyond the bend. Um, Especially back then, right? Yes, even biofeedback was wild then, you know. That, yeah. Still is. <laughs> yeah. Most people think I'm nuts for doing neuroscience. Yeah. Okay. okay. So uh, anyway, there was a, a couple taking the class. We met once a week. There were probably 25 people in the class. Graduate students from Stanford, a lot from engineering, because Willis Harmon, who ran the class, was in engineering, and people from professional schools and so forth. And we were talking about, it was called the human potential. That was the name of the class. And one couple came in one day and started to describe their psychedelic experiences the first Saturday. And they're talking about flowers moving in a vase and the things they felt. And uh, this is the first time I ever heard anyone describe a psychedelic experience. And to my really amazement, probably two-thirds of the class joined in and talked about their own psychedelic experiences. Now, this was an advanced graduate seminar at an advanced university. Did they give you drugs in the class? Oh, no, or, no, 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 no. So no people, had, they found some on the weekend, but then everyone just talked about it. Well, okay. it, was, it was only 65 miles from San Francisco. Okay. There <laughs> weren't in short supply back then, as no, I understand? No, not at all. And so that really surprised me. I mean, here were, because my idea of people taking psychedelics with this sort of dirty, scruffy, old, mind rotted people, and here were advanced graduate students at Stanford. And that sort of jolted me on that. And then one of the students had uh, a ticket to a lecture. Esselman Institute 
had a special weekend program at Stanford, and they'd bring their people up to Stanford because it was too hard for the students to go down there. And this guy had a ticket for some guy I'd never heard of, but he couldn't use the ticket, so he gave it to me. And I thought, well, I'll go, and if it's boring, I'll leave. And it turned out it was Alan Watts talking about religion, East and West, and the use of psychedelics. <laughs> and he was a very erudite, scholarly British scholar talking about that. And it's the first time I realized one could talk about this in an academically responsible way. So that got me interested, but still I hadn't had my first experience. Then I had my first experience a year or two later in Lake Tahoe uh, during a, a winter up there. And that, that I realized there was something in ter- in very interesting and curious about this. I was interested in it. There was a sense of portent something interesting and important and then something had happened or would happen or was going to happen. So that got me interested in, in it um, sort of intellectually. And from then on, I was lucky to go to a number of different places and meet a lot of different people. And um, so little by little, I sort of learned about the field. Um, I'm not someone who goes from one direction and then suddenly changes distance direction, but I changed like a big aircraft carrier a little at a time. So little by little, one thing brought me to one another and then another and another. And then after my first experience in 1970, I started teaching here at Northern Illinois University that fall. And then in 1982, started teaching a class in psychedelics. So all these little pieces sort of fit together very nicely. Are you happy with how the world of psychedelics has evolved over the past 50 years? Very much so, yes. Um, particularly the work that's going down on the psychotherapy. I and mean, it's really absolutely top work that top graduate schools and medical schools are doing with absolutely top period. For a while, everybody who went to psychedelic conferences were either gray hairs or about to become gray hairs. And if you go to the recent ones, there are people who are in 20s and 30s who are like really bright neuroscientists and psychotherapists and so forth getting into the field. It's really uh, very gratifying to see all these these new young people coming into the field. And then um, there are these different, like MAPS as an example, developing MDMA that is working on the psychotherapy angle. So I'm really delighted with it. It's come along. Also, I'm a little annoyed with with one aspect of it. Okay, and, what's that? And that's Bicycle Day. You know, I, I started Bicycle Day, and um, I'm very glad it caught on. Remind uh, remind listeners, a lot of people probably don't know okay. uh, what it's celebrating, but it'd be it, great it, if you walked us through It's that. a holiday that I invented to celebrate the day when Albert Hoffman, the, the discoverer of LSD, or synthesizer of LSD, um, second, took his first um, intentional trip. On a Friday, he had a little dose, and something weird was happening. So he went back on Monday, and he had what he thought would be such a very small dose that it couldn't possibly have any effect on him. <laughs> it was 250 micrograms, which is enough for a good, solid experience. Yeah, two and, and a half normal tabs, basically. Yeah, yeah. And he, I mean, I mean, not, nothing had been active in that small dose, so he thought nothing would happen. And he had this blowout trip. And he rode his bike home because there was no cars in Switzerland because the war was on. They couldn't get gas. So he rode his bike home. And so I call that bicycle day. Now, originally, I would have had the first experience become bicycle day. But it was during the middle of the week and not a good day to have a party. So I moved to the 16th, which was near or on a weekend. I'm not sure it was a Friday or Saturday. And so I call that bicycle day. So that and it's, it's caught on surprisingly well. It's, it's very gratifying, but I'm I'm annoyed with it because most of my work is in my books, and it's about using psychedelics intellectually and for mind development. And yet, what's caught on is Bicycle Day. So, as a friend of mine <laughs> said, that's the way of the world, you know. So. So you're annoyed that you're known for Bicycle Day, even though most of this is around hacking the brain for higher performance. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm both annoyed and pleased at the same time, right? Yeah, you know, I I feel you. I'm pretty well known for Bulletproof Coffee, but I do an awful lot of work uh, on human brain and you know performance, uh, where that's just a gateway drug. Um, so I'm, I understand uh, where you're coming from there. Um, I mean, some of the that heavier stuff you've done, you invented something called multi-state theory that I, I think is is you know, becoming accepted. Walk 
Uh, walk me through what multi-state theory is and the impact it's had. Yeah, the best way to get into that is this work, the, the word that I've written called Mind App. Is your, your most recent book, right? Yes, right. Okay. And it's just, the it's a very similar, similar to the idea that we can invent um, apps and install them in our devices, and the devices can do new things and become more powerful. So I'm just taking an analogy and saying there are things we can install in our brain-mind complex that allow her to do, to do new things and to do things more strongly. And so, so that, I'm not saying that mind app is like artificial intelligence in the electronical sense. I'm just taking that idea and transferring it over to things. Now, my favorite, of course, is psychedelics, but it includes brain stimulation, hypnosis, breathing techniques, biofeedback, um, chanting, yoga, hypnosis, on and all. So what I'm saying is, trying to say is that all of these are are mind apps that we can install and use our brain-mind complex in different ways. And while all of these have been on the sort of fringes of psychology, what I'm trying to do is to get psychologists, actually, I'm going to speak about mind studies people, not just psychologists or not neuroscientists, but the people who study the mind, to recognize that there are all these other ways to study the mind, to use the mind, to use our minds, and probably to do things with them we didn't know we can do. And so mind apps, just like regular apps, allow our minds to do things. Now, what multi-state theory does is just recognize that there are all these apps and it tries to put them all together as, as part of a large whole theory rather than this little isolated fringe group there and another fringe group there so that, say, the yoga and meditation and psychedelics and brain stimulation people can all recognize themselves as working in the same field but using different variables to get into it. So that's what I'm trying to get people to recognize. So mind state, multi-state theory just recognizes that. I'm uh, I'm pleased that you included the whole state of altered states technologies, a whole suite of them in there, because yeah. uh, like you said, you know, flashing lights or, you know, brain stimulation. Um, I've been a, a tourist of that world for 20 years and it's it's magically changed how my brain works. You know, bright bright lights with LED infrared stimulation of the brain, uh, magnetic stimulation. Uh, I've run a neuroscience institute that brings about the altered states without the drugs uh, for human performance specifically, just because it's changed my life so much. Um, but all of those are sort of put in the fringe science right. weird bucket, but they're the biggest things. Yeah. Um, yeah. When, um, when you look at the efficacy of, psychedelics versus all of this other stuff that is non-psychedelic or at least non-pharmaceutical, how efficacious are the other things? Because a lot of people don't want to do drugs, but they're interested in the states. Do you have to do drugs to get these full benefits? No. Uh, uh, to get the full benefits, yes, but there's certainly lots of other drugs you can go, like okay. hypnosis and yoga and the martial arts and breathing techniques. And they would all do different things. In addition to that, there are new wind apps that are appearing. For example, we we're importing them from other cultures. Ayahuasca is probably the best example of that, or Ibogaine, because um, we're discovering that there are these psychoactive plants and, and techniques around the world. We're importing those just like we import cars and clothing and everything else. But not only that, but there's this great research that's being done on the brain. I mean, um, I subscribe to Science Daily, the brain news, and every day there's new things they're discovering about the brain. Of course, they're interested in um, mental health and uh, curing diseases and conditions. But also, those those are also techniques that can be developed into new type of mind apps. The people working in the field are not interested in that angle. I'd like to get more people interested in them. For example, when you find out that um, certain part of uh, the brain cells will work with a certain type of stimulation, light, for example, you know about that's work. Okay, that that can be used not just only for psychotherapy and cure illnesses, but also as a way of using the brain and turning on that brain in different parts. Uh, let's say with like neurofeedback, you can learn to actually turn on and not turn on various parts of the brain. And this area really, I think, is a, a huge area to be looked at. So there's, there's so many opportunities there, it's hard to know which way to look. But my particular way is psychedelics. What's your favorite psychedelic? Oh, LSD. Without a doubt. LSD. All right, yeah. Why? Um, it's stronger and purer. Now, also, 
this may be just a matter of where I got my start. If I had started with um, MDMA, which actually isn't a psychedelic, I can I consider the psychedelic family to be um, LSD, mescaline, peyote, and ayahuasca. And no, no and, mushrooms in there. Psilocybin. Oh yeah, psilocybin. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Yes, and um, I say MDMA has sort of been adopted into the family. So yeah. people call it a psychedelic, but it isn't it's one. more but of a stimulant. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, right. So um, anyway, that, that's my favorite, very definitely. Um, but maybe, you know, if I had started out with yoga and meditation, I'd probably say that's the way to, to go. When you talk about mind apps, uh, a part of me is really excited. Uh, but the part of me that uh, used to run uh, t- run strategy <laughs> for one of the largest computer security companies in the world, I know that uh, 29 apps just got pulled from the Google Play Store uh, for having malware in them. <laughs> I, don't, I, know, I don't know what 29 apps is. Oh, no, 20, it's 29 different applications you oh, can put oh, on your oh. Android device that had malware in them but looked pretty good. Oh, okay. The, so the, the question is, you know, if I'm installing a Mind app, how do I actually know what it does? Like, yeah. How do I know I'm getting, when I, when I put the tab in my mouth or eat the mushroom or whatever it is, yeah. How do I know I'm, I'm not getting something that's hidden in there that I didn't want? Yeah, that's that's um, exactly why a lot of research has to be done in the field. Okay. And and, and um, uh, I think a lot of the apps that are tried are not going to be very useful, but some of them will be very useful. Now, we'll get into the, uh, if we jump quick to mind design, here's mm-hmm. the possibility. Um, think of chemistry, and we have all these elements out there, and we put them together in different molecules. And most of the molecules are just curiosities and interesting, but a few are really good, are really handy. Now, if we take that model and move it over into mind apps, what happens when we combine, let's say, um, LSD with hypnosis and brain stimulation? We would produce a mind state that's never been produced before. It would be like a new molecule. And we can take all these different mind apps and put them in different combinations. And this is what I call mind design. Not only that, they can put together in different strengths. And you're going to have a weak dose of this and a weak, you know, uh, example of that. And they're all just like with molecules. You can make all practically an infinite number of molecules. We can make an infinite number of mind states. And I think most of them probably won't be very useful, but a few of them will. Well, also, we have to be like with the, chemicals, some of them are going to be dangerous. And this is where we really need is like a big, a whole department in a university or a center that would look at these systematically and just and go through them and try them all probably originally on other mammals and see what happens to them. Although mammals are not very helpful when we're talking about cognitive processes. Well, they, there's a book. I mean, there's PCAL by Sasha Shulgin. You know, the yeah. phenyl, phenylethanolamines I have known and loved. Actually, there's two of them. Yes. I, and I, I still regret I never I was going to buy his his test tube set from his lab off of eBay oh. when he passed um, just to have, you know, as like a little museum piece. Uh, and I didn't do that. I still regret it. But I, um, you know, I, I feel like he, he went through and he took every one of the derivatives he could find and, and <laughs> yeah. carefully journaled it and said, well, I didn't die. Here's what I noticed. You should stay away from those. <laughs> yeah. So I, I feel like like the explorers like you, to be honest, I mean, you're an explorer. You're a pioneer. Not to mention, you know, a, a millennia of shamanic practice in different parts of the world. But you've you've gone through and you've done that work. Um, but we still have all these questions. Like the CIA, apparently at the time you were doing this, was also pretty interested in these sorts of drugs, and I think it came right. out to be against them. Uh, but you're you're pretty convinced on the safety profile today. It really sounds like. Uh, no, I'm not. I, th- I think okay. these have to be studied very carefully, probably in very small amounts. And for, for instance, uh, they all will have some biological effect or they wouldn't have a psychological effect. So okay. we have to find out which ones are dangerous and which ones are useful and how they can be used. And so, as just as with chemicals, we have to find out what we can do with some of these chemicals. And a lot of chemicals have been used, really shouldn't have been used. And oh, even yeah. now in our agriculture, there's still some that have to be sort of removed. So uh, we have to be at least as careful and probably more careful when we start using mind apps, I don't want to be the first subject. I'm put it that way. Okay, <laughs> but you okay. want you want them to be studied. Yeah, very systematically, and and, and people who have a very good biological background are absolutely necessary. By the way, you mentioned Sasha Shulgin. 
Let me see uh-huh. if I can show it to you. Oh, yeah. it doesn't show. Little bottle there, there? Uh, See, on top of that shelf there, yeah. there's a bottle. Uh-huh. That's that's from Sasha's 75th birthday party. Ah. Um, Anna, Anna <laughs> had a special bo- bottle made for him and with his label on it. So, oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, that's one of my real gems. Uh, yeah, he's uh, for for if you're listening to this and you haven't heard of him, um, if you really want to dig deep, you read either of his two famous books on psychedelics. You just realize there's a whole universe oh, here, yeah. um, and oh. it's it it is to the point. It, your work, uh, Thomas, it, it it really is around you. They give you visibility and all all of what's going on in your brain. And I still have this this sort of nagging uh, nagging thing. I've learned more from the the neurofeedback side of things. If you change a setting in your brain, it may very well be invisible to you. I've also taken a few big hits to the head. And mm. after you get a smack to the head, you swear a lot. Uh, and you can't play go fish because your brain doesn't work. But when someone asks you, you're like, I am not angry. Because you can't see it because you change the instrument of cognition. And I, I still wonder, you know, if if people go out there and, you know, try a new psychedelic or even try one that's that's there you know, how do they know that it worked? And so I want to ask you that. How do you know that it worked for you? Uh, first of all, let me say thank you for suggesting a new mind app to me, getting hit on the head <laughs> with a baseball bat. I never, I never thought it. of that before. Mine right. was a titanium knee, but it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, you asked how, how do I... How, how do you know? Because the instrument you used to measure whether they worked was itself affected. Oh, yeah, well, how would you know that they worked? Well, you know your own subjective experience, but then you need outside people who are going to, are going to let's say, do brain scans or just see how you act and how you talk and how your cognitive okay. processes work, uh, or perceptual processes, and the whole sort of do a whole scan of all the things that the body and brain do to see what differences there are. And sometimes they'll be like the very minor ones, sometimes very big ones. So um, that's why this field is so. Um, exciting because there are all these possibilities. There's like there's endless research. There are generations of research to be done here, um, and to try them out on and and also um, different uh, um, uh, mind body effects will have different effects on people at different times. So it isn't it isn't just going to be one thing that we encounter. It's like set and setting. Okay, this will apply not just to psychedelics but to everything else. And and also the, that includes the person's own personality and the person's unconscious. So the number of variables here are, are absolutely enormous. They, they are enormous, and and perhaps never will be that limited. Uh, I know that you know we can hook a EEG up to someone's brain and say, all right, you know, take this substance and let's see what what your brain waves do. But if I was to induce those brainwaves using structured magnetic fields, only some percentage of people are going to have the same experience as before. Yeah. Um, you probably know about the God helmet. Have you come across a person just I've work? read about it. I haven't done, so haven't I, done it. I have one back there. I, I didn't see God. But for people listening, 4% <laughs> of people who use this carefully structured pulsed electromagnetic fields literally say, I met God, my version of God standing right in front of me. Now, uh, you know, highly religious people may say that's obviously a tool of Satan. That's not what I'm going with this. All I'm saying is 4% of people can have a reliable, inducible experience yeah. of the holy. Um, and it's customized for their belief system. So I, like, without a judgment on that, why do 96% of people not get that? that? I find that a little bit hard to study academically. Uh, do you have a, a perspective on you know, why, why, do, you know, why do hallucinogens work for some people in a certain way, but not for others? Do you think it's all chemical? Or is there something deeper? Well, it's it's bound to be a combination of things. Um, personality, I mean, how the person is feeling at that particular moment, um, if the person is bi- biologically healthful. I think it's probably these work much better on people who are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s than people like myself who are in our 70s and 80s and our, our kidneys and our livers just aren't working that well. Um, and It's another who, reason to use acid instead of mushrooms because it's a lot easier on the liver. Well, that's a good rationalization. Thank you. <laughs> um, Just saying. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of out of the loop now that I'm okay. in my 80s. Um, but, uh, but anyway, I mean, there are all these um, var- and people who are discovering new variables. Like Stan Groff um, talks about um, the, the positions of the, 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 the planets now, that's stretching things for me, and yet 
this is a guy whose mind I very much admire and whose ideas I have learned a lot from. So I'm undecided on what to do with that idea. I mean, is Saturn going to enter, interfere with how I'm doing psychedelics or breathing, te- breathing techniques? I don't know. There are going to be a lot of variables out there. We don't I'm very know angry at Saturn myself. I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what, what? The good thing is we have enough data now that with millions of people being able to measure little fluctuations, we'll actually, in, within a few years, have enough data to tell you whether Saturn matters. Because we know the moon matters, because that's easy. Just go to an emergency room on a full moon. But uh, the, the rest of this, hey, I, I'm, willing, I'm willing to believe something's going on that I don't see or sense that I think is unlikely because the data won't lie. And, and that, the, that in combination with the psychedelic research is cool. There are boundary variables we just don't know about. And people look back at us the way we look back at the people in the Middle Ages with the sewer running through the streets. And they think, how did they live like that? And, and another generation or less people can look back at us in the early 20th century, first century and think, how do they live? Why didn't they know about you know germs or vitamins or whatever, whatever it is that okay. we're missing? There's a really good book by Benny Shannon called Antipodes. Um, spell that? Anti- um, Antipodes, like... like like uh, Australia is in the Antipodes. Okay, got it. Okay. okay. And he is a cognitive psychologist from Israel who went on a vacation in Brazil. I think the rest of the story probably falls into place for you. And he got interested in ayahuasca. And as a cognitive psychologist, he realized there was a lot of cognitive psychology didn't make sense of the ayahuasca experience. So he tried to use cognitive psychology to understand ayahuasca. Then he did the smart move of using ayahuasca around to understand cognitive psychology. And I think there are a lot of fields where we can go use psychedelics to understand a field we haven't known about and use the field to understand psychedelics. And that's one of the... He he sort of sets the picture of how to approach this by not just saying, how do I use neuropsychology to understand psychedelics and how do I use psychedelics to understand neuropsychology and that that's pretty well established but they're they're bound to be all these other fields that are out there that really need to be developed well that book you're recommending is uh, 50 bucks for a used paperback so it must be good oh <laughs> wow that's it's gone up yeah it, it sure has that that's pretty cool it's, well, it's one I haven't read and I'm pretty well read on on these subjects um, but I'm going to order it anyway because, hey, that's how, you, how I roll. Um, talk to me more about multi-state theory. I, I mean, after 50 years of working on this stuff, uh, you've, you've really kind of, of uh, created it, but I, I still don't feel like I have a good picture of it in my head. Okay. The idea is really very simple. It's really to recognize that our brain-mind complex can produce a lot of... I use mind-body state rather than the state of consciousness because the word consciousness has a a lot of different meanings. When you get people together and they talk about consciousness, they think they're talking about the same thing, but they're talking about very different kinds of things. So I use mind-body state in the sense that Charlie Tart means an altered state of consciousness, the mind-body functioning. So what multi-state psychology does is just recognize that we are capable as humans of producing and using a large number of mind-body states. And there are a lot of ways of producing them. These are the mind apps. And our question is, what are they going to be useful for? Just interesting sort of curiosities, like listening to music or getting more out of music or solving problems or, um, well, a way of looking at current psychotherapy is that partially asks the questions. And this is is, the general question that comes out of this. Psychotherapy partially answers the question, how does psychotherapy vary from mind-body state to mind-body state? And that's what the research is going on now. Now, take that question and broaden it and say, how does blank, whatever you're interested in, vary from mind-body state to mind-body state? And in that blank, you plug in anything you're interested in, anything from the social sciences or psychology or even philosophy. So this, and this applies to every mind-body state, not just our ordinary state, but the states that we use through meditation, hypnosis, etc. But the new states that we can invent, the mind, and how does whatever it is we're interested in, let, well, let's use perception. That's a nice common, although it's, a, it's actually a cluster of things. How does perception vary from mind-body state to mind-body state? Probably most people listening to this program knows 
that their perception will vary from mind-body state to mind-body state. But then the, what happens when you invent, invent new states? How will perception vary in those states? Will there be useful things that we'll be able to see in those states that we wouldn't see in other states? And problem solving, I think, is the real hidden gem in this. Um, there was the study done in 1966 of people who were mathematicians, physicists, businessmen, designers, and so forth, who all had been working on problems and been unable to solve them. Jim Fadiman, who I mentioned, is one of the people. Yeah. Bill Harmon, who ran that class at Stanford, is the other guy. And they, they got together, and they would get people in, in groups and give them small dose. The information is very, sometimes it says masculine, and sometimes it says LSD. But anyway, they would then work on their on their problems. And our 27 people who were professionals in the field and been working and were stuck on problems. These just weren't ordinary problems. Problems I really care about and thought about and worked on, couldn't solve, would have insights. And actually, they got 44 solutions. So some people solve more than one problem. So now every field has its mm -hmm. problems. So problem solving is, is, is not just like psychotherapy that helps people with certain conditions and problems, but it goes in every field. I mean, the intellectual fields and religion and the arts and all fields have problems. I think the real big future here is to develop centers that will help people working on problems to have psychedelic experiences or other mind-body state experiences and approach the problems from a different perspective. I'm working on that from a, a neurofeedback perspective Great. with my 40 years of Zen company where we get in groups of executives uh, five at a time who come in and you know, do some focus work over the over the course of days. Um, but I'm really interested in Fadiman's work on microdosing of LSD. Let me say, why don't you give them a little microdose while they're doing <laughs> the meditation? There's that whole federal law thing that we need to get past uh, right now. Um, otherwise, I think that could be really helpful even in, in conjunction but we we can map out some of the states where people go when they're they're in you know surfing that edge between a dream state and an awake state where the creativity comes out and you can even enhance and train it. I, I'm intrigued by what a lot of my Silicon Valley friends are doing. They'll take a tenth of a, a normal dose, you know, ten micrograms of LSD, um, you know, a few times a week or sometimes every day, um, and use it like a nootropic or a smart drug. Um, what is your take on microdosing versus doing a full dose experience from that or any of the other hallucinogens? Some pros and cons? Well, the experiences vary enormously with dose. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Well, the experiences vary enormously with dose. Um, and, and medicine, it's called a step function. It'll go along. If you add some, tons, sometimes it'll just make it stronger. And sometimes it'll, it'll jump up to another step. And that clearly is true with psychedelics. Um, in terms of, of, of problem solving, though, there, there are three um, bits of research that come together in interesting ways. The first was done at Imperial College. Um, and they show that um, in psychedelic states, the brain makes more connections par through parts of the brain that normally don't connect with each other. Now, there aren't actually more connections. It's just that their connections are there, make, are more varied than they were previously. And parts of the brain that normally don't talk to each other do. So there's that, you've probably seen that famous circle with the, that shows the brain connections before and after. Of, of course. But, but then the second part is that Goethe University, they did research, and they found that people who have better connected brains 
are more intelligent. Okay. Um, and um, in Cambridge University, there's a study that says a clear link between, um, uh, well, at, at Goethe, they found that smart people have better connected brains. And then at Cambridge, they found that a better connected brains um, result in more IQ. So it moved from psychedelics, making more connections and connections, increasing IQ. Um, okay. Now, as far as I know, these are just temporary. They, if you, that means if you take a um, LSD, you're going to always have a lighter brain. I suspect, and there may be bias on my part, to think that it does open you up to new ideas and to, and to make connections with things. And so I think that the daily dosing probably helps in that, in that part. We do know that many of the psychedelics increase levels of brain-derived nootropic factor, or BDNF. Um, so does coffee, so does exercise, so does deep breathing exercises, so does, I'm going down the list of things in your book, those aren't all in there, but the transcranial brain stimulation uh, does that, and sleep does that. It, it seems like pretty much everything that's good for the brain does that, and a Tell lot of people again, don't recognize that. Brain-derived neurotropic factor? Yeah. Is that the, oh, okay, this is, I haven't heard about it. Okay, so it, it's basically that and nerve growth factor. It causes you to make new connections and to grow new nerves. Oh, okay, right. Got but it. things like LSD and ayahuasca, um, but surprisingly, I don't believe MDMA um, or things like methamphetamine, other you know, non-hallucinogens do that. So uh. we, we know that raising that is good for the brain. It makes you more neuroplastic, so you can have a, a child's ability to learn and all. Um, so at, at this point, why we haven't done a lot of research on using these compounds for neurodegenerative illnesses where, hey, your brain's going away anyway, what's the harm of testing a, a hallucinogen? Even if it's bad for you, your brain, it, you know, you're starting to put your car keys in the fridge. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> a tab of acid that might help, it's not gonna make things worse. Uh, at least I, I wouldn't think it would, but that's the sort of academic and medical study that you could do with, uh, you know, proper medical oversight and say, wow, you know, may, maybe we reverse something. Um, I think they're all they're an enormous, as you know, enormous number of things to be discovered yet. There, there's there are all these hints all over the place, and what we need is some sort of systematic way or ways to uh, to approach all these possibilities. Again, it's just like it's like chemistry when they just determine that there are these various elements, and you can do all these different things with these elements. The same thing applies to the the brain functions. And the mind apps, you can put those together and do different things with them. And we just don't know yet. But we're getting, we're just sort of poking around at the horizon of this. Did you ever get approached by uh, three-letter agencies uh, throughout the course of your academic thing saying, how can we use these things you know, for, for control, for government things, for interrogation? You know, all, all the stuff that, that undoubtedly the conspiracy theorists uh, will say after this interview anyway. Uh, but it, is that real? <laughs> Oh, probably, but I've never, I've never been approached. You've never been approached, no, okay? But, but I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a lab person. Got it. I'm somebody who reads the, reads the research and tries to make sense out of it. Got it. And so you were teaching about it, but you weren't, you know, the, the hands-on there. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it's funny. The second I started mentioning uh, the hallucinogens and psychedelics, uh, I literally the the small friends would come out and say, "Dave, clearly you're a CIA plant in your paid." And I'm just like, "This is crazy pants." I, you know, I'm talking about doing ayahuasca in the jungle, you know, twenty something years ago, uh, and and acknowledging that it did something useful. <laughs> but I always want to ask the people who were there in the '60s because at this point, if something, you know, if if guys in suits showed up and asked you stuff, you'd probably be willing to talk about it 50 years later, right? Um, but nothing like that ever happened. Okay. Uh, no, um, and interesting. I you know I taught a class in psychedelics at, her, at the undergraduate, undergraduate level, and the father of one of my students um, was in one of the government agencies. I'm not sure which one. And his job back in the '60s was infiltrate, infiltrate student groups. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. And and, he, and I and what and she told me I said, boy, I want this guy to come. He to come to class. So he was a a, a, a class visitor. A guest speaker, and he wow, brought, about he, how he, to he infiltrate brought, student groups. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he brought he brought along some of the flyer. He was retired by this time, or almost okay. retired, and he brought around some of the some of the wanted posters that were available then, and, and sort of wow. And of course, the students love to have them in class. Students love speakers, and um, I, I've had several different ones come. And um, he was a great favorite because he was a guy who was on the on the line, but on the other side of the line. 
Wow. Oh, that's that's fantastic and interesting. Um, do, do you worry that there's negative uh, societal implications? You know, if you could go to Seven Eleven and get your you know your tab of acid, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? This is one of the concerns that I have um, about an Oregon and Denver that are making mushrooms, and I guess Oakland making mushrooms yeah. legal. There are some people who should not be doing psychedelics. People who are like pre-schizophrenic or have other um, problems in their yeah. family or in themselves. And I'm worried that, that they're going to cause problems and sort of try to clamp down the whole thing. There has to be some way of allowing some people to do psychedelics and not allowing other people. The problem is we don't have people who are competent to say you can do them, you can't do them. All the research that's been done so far, like at Langone Medical School at NYU or Johns Hopkins Medical School, they screen their subjects very thoroughly. And they basically have people who are mentally and physically healthy. They can usually um, almost, in fact, an awful lot of them have graduate degrees and can express themselves. So this is not a, and a problem is people seeing the, those results and they say, oh, this ought to apply to everyone. But they don't have people who are risky taking in that. And I'm worried about these risky people because there are definitely people who should not be doing psychedelics or should be doing them only with people who can control them and who are psychotherapists. And I'm worried about them. Yeah. Especially, you know, your, your first time really needs to be there. There are some people, and you won't know who you are, where you have a problem with serotonin syndrome. You're going to take a normal dose of psychedelics and it's going to blow your serotonin up and you don't pull it out of your brain fast enough and your heart rate uh, goes way up, your blood pressure goes up, oh, which can kill you and you start shaking and you can do it for days. And intravenous benzodiazepines will turn that right off. <laughs> as long as you're with someone who can give those to you and knows to do it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the... That, that's the risk here. It's also like alcohol. You know, there are some people you really ought not to drink because you punch people every time you drink, but you still can go buy it, right? The, 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 two, <laughs> the two related questions that come up there, I wonder about, for example, I'm interested in the use of, of the, the entheogenic use of psychedelics. I use the word entheogen only to apply to religious and spiritual uses. Th thank uh, you for defining that. Okay, so religious use of this, which is the first time I used it, was in a religious use in, in you know Peru with uh, ayahuasca. So walk people through the religious use, even the religious research going on with these. Oh, well, the the... There's no like really good organized research in this field. Let's say like people go to Peru or the Upper Amazon to try ayahuasca, but we don't have a systematic organization. I can imagine a, a religious order sort of taking this on as their business. And um, the the question is, who gets to say um, who can take it uh, for religious spiritual purposes? Certainly not every clergyman is competent on that. And on the other hand, if the government sets standards, the government is then determining what is and isn't a religion, 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 legitimate yeah. experience. So the, their track record is pretty crappy there. Yeah. But, <laughs> they're, but should we say um, only doctors who have spiritual training should be able to do that or clergy who have medical training? I mean, that's cutting down the field an awfully far. So the, there are all these questions of, Who's qualified to say who should and shouldn't do psychedelics? Now, I'm, I'm interested in intellectual fields. So is any professor of English capable of taking students on a graduate trip? That's kind of a frightening experience, I think. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, but uh, somebody would have to be trained on the intellectual uses of psychedelics. And that person would probably have to have mental health training as well as uh, training in whatever intellectual field that person is in. And so just, you know, in medicine, we have people who are prepared and there's a protocol and you prepare people and you sit with them and you integrate afterwards. What are the proper procedures, let's say, in religion or in um, intellectual work? And we haven't worked that out yet. Um, and yet there are people in the religious fields and intellectual fields who are doing psychedelics, although they don't talk much about them, but they're definitely out there. It, it, it's one of the, the sad things that's been happening in, in, oh, maybe, Jesus, going back a good 15, 18 years, um, I did a, a lot of holotropic breath work, ah. which is Stan Groff's, um, we'll call it Mind App, where it was to replace LSD uh, because it was, you know, it was hard to get 
Uh, and also I wouldn't have known how to take it anyway. Uh, so I, uh, I started doing this, you know, with a group, a personal development group, and I really had a lot of, uh, a lot of improvements and awareness and things uh, that, that came out of that, uh, which is one of the things that, that pushed me in this direction to, to go deeper on neuroscience and, and all, but even, even that experience, I mean, there are some people who kind of go a little bit nuts from doing that. It, it, it opens up things maybe that they didn't need to open up or they, they just weren't right. White, yeah. weren't, weren't quite ready. Uh, and then someone said, Hey, here, and it, it's a phone number on a piece of paper. And, oh, this is a therapist who actually uses LSD, uh, during therapy sessions, but it was like an underground of therapists who would do it. And so, you know, you could call this person or, or call that person. And as uh, person was too far away for it to work uh, for me to, to do any work with them. But um, even today, uh, there are what a dozen licensed, uh, uh, a dozen or so people licensed to do therapy with psychedelics. It, it's, it's exceptionally rare, um, and it's illegal in most states even for them to practice. But at least they're licensed, whatever that means. Uh, do you think in five years we're going to have therapists licensed to do this in most states, or in ten years, or never? Uh, what, what's your um, eventually? But my hopes have always been to uh, to too much and expecting it to happen within the next several years. But clearly the work the MAPS is doing now with MDMA and with PTSD is going to be the door opener. Um, and, and once um, the Army um, Medical Corps and the Veterans Administration Hospital get into using M MDMA with PTSD, that's definitely going to be a big advance. Uh, something that, that is sort of coming over the horizon now is that um, um, the flu or the coronavirus problem right now is going to uh, result in a lot of people having mental problems, both because of the stress that they've been under and the PTSD that they're under. For example, people in the medical yeah. field. A lot uh, of trauma. Yeah. And um, also some people, um, there's uh, there's an article by David Nutt, who's one of the major people in, in Imperial College in London that came out yesterday. Um, and he points out that one of the things coronavirus can do is to sort of get into the brain and cause actual biological damage to some people. It's it's not usual. I wouldn't say it's rare, but it's unusual. But it's, it's frequent enough so that mental health professionals will have to be looking at this. I I believe that we have, at least some of us out there, have a pretty clear understanding of what's going on there. Um, I've been working with a group of you know, docs off, uh, off the normal channels and... Uh, we just have a classic case of hypoxic damage to the brain. And fortunately, I've had a few of the world's top experts on the show on how to fix that. So everyone who has neurological symptoms once they're cured is gonna spend 40 hours in divided doses in hyperbaric and we're gonna be able to fix that. In fact, I, I would actually put hyperbaric oxygen on your list of mind apps. Oh, I uh, It's so that. powerful. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, you, you can take someone who's running at one level and they do 41 hour sessions with oxygen and all of a sudden they're a different person. I mean, it, it is profound. Wow. Um, and, and so I, 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 the mechanism there is not well discussed in public, but that will be on my blog very shortly. Probably by the time this is published, I'll have finished my piece on that. I'm less afraid of that than most people, but the PTSD side of it, like, you know, endless people coming in and the germophobia, so we're going to, we're going to have to up, uh, upregulate our manufacturer of psychedelics to help people deal with the trauma from this thing. <laughs> mm. uh, sorry to go off on a little bit of a tangent there about hypoxia in the brain. It's just, it's one of those things that, that just, we've got to talk about this because it affects um, a lot of the diseases of aging too. Like you get less blood in the brain you changes your behavior, changes your access to the spiritual states um, to the point that if you were to take LSD in a hyperbaric chamber, you're going to have a different experience because your brain cells can do what they're trying to do without enough oxygen. So it's uh, it, it's a I fascinating- I never thought of that combination. That's yeah. an interesting idea. It's an additional variable. It's sort of like, yeah. okay, how do I make the cells better able to what the cells do and then induce a substance? Uh, and I just from Burning Man and all, even when people take mitochondrial stimulators, which help with oxygen utilization, all of a sudden, if they're you know, having a five out of 10, like I'm just too tired to really experience this, they just wake back up. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the metabolic underpinnings of uh, any hallucinogen experience, because it seems like they, it, it always works better when the metabolism works better and deep breathing exercises work better and yoga works better and martial arts work better. You know, the, the whole palette of technologies 
uh, I, I, for, by the way, very much appreciate the way you talk about them as mind apps. It's, it's neat. Like, oh, do this and get this. It, it's, it's a handy idea. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an yeah. idea people can absorb easier, easier than, say, psychotechnologies. Yeah, exactly. That can be a little bit scary. Um, you talk about two other things in your book about mind apps for the sciences and the the idea of taking these apart from you know trauma release, which we just talked about, but into you know, generating ideas and solving problems of humanity. You talk about consilience and emergence. Oh, Define what consilience and emergence are in the okay. world of mind apps. Okay, consilience um, is an idea that E.O. Wilson, the the ant guy, invented. And it's an idea that's been around, and, and he renamed it consilience. It's the idea of taking all the theory and facts that we have on different areas, say all the way from, let's say, subatomic physics through physics and chemistry and biology and psychology and the social sciences, and linking them all together in one big structure, one structure of ideas. Yep. Um, and psychedelics are perfectly set to do this. Because yeah. to do research in this, it helps if you can have an input in one level and an output at another. And the psychedelics, for example, you have a chemical input, and you may have a religious or output or high um, high view of, let's say, things like reality, truth, goodness, beauty, all those things. So you're able to to do an experiment that comes in at one level and goes out at another level. And psychedelics are particularly well suited to do this. Um, because then you're linking together these various levels and, and linking to like one level of the structure to another level of the structure. And that's what consilience is, to make sense of all these things by putting them together into one big framework. So, so that's, okay. what, that's what consilience is. And all these mind apps are good for this, not just psychedelics, but meditation. You know, you meditate, and you're, you're doing a, a breathing or bodily technique, and you get a cognitive or emotional result out of it. Or with hypno hypnosis is a really interesting one because you can in induce physiological changes cognitively. So you're working from the top down in that instance rather than from the bottom up. Um, so so that's that's where I think of uh, psychedelics and all the mind body apps can really contribute to this building one big structure of scientific knowledge. Now emergence is an interesting one. Um, when we things are put together in different patterns, new new characteristics evolve. And in common, we say the whole is more than some of its parts. And the most common example, of course, is you take hydrogen gas and oxygen gas, and you put them together and get water, and you get all those watery qualities that neither the gas has. So those qualities, we say, quote, emerge. They come out of nowhere. Okay. And this happens all up and down this level of consilience. Um, and so um, what uh, what uh, psychedelics do, we take in a chemical and mind emerges. Now, our, generally in our ordinary state, which we're, you and I are probably in now, we're both probably drinking a little caffeine, so that boosts us up a little. Um, but the idea of the idea called the hard question is, how does this biological stuff result in subjective experience? What's what's that shift that happens there? And David Chalmers, the philosopher, calls it quote the hard question. Okay, and and it is a hard question, but I want to propose what I call the impossible question. Now, how about not just how does the brain produce subjective experience, but if we go down to the gases producing water, okay, that's emergence, and, or if we put chemistry together in a certain way to get biology, how does chemistry produce biology and the biological characters emerge? So that all these levels of emergence go up and down here too. So the question I have then, is there some law of emergence that applies all up and down this whole schedule, this whole scaffolding of ideas? And that I consider the impossible question because you'd have to, you'd have to apply how do subatomic particles get together for particles, and how do thoughts get together for higher level thoughts? And is there is there a systematic idea that will apply across all this level? I can't imagine one. I'd love to be wrong on this, but I can't imagine somebody coming out with a solution. Somebody will somewhere, but um, I'd love to see it. Or you're just drinking water or gin, not caffeine. You know, as long as it looks like water, it's water, right? <laughs> right. 
Uh, and I'm not saying what may or may not be in so, it. So in these, these are like big background yeah. ideas in the sciences. The scientists are built on these ideas, but most scientists are busy doing particulars in this big field. And what I want to do is see people to look at this, some of these larger questions. You talk towards the end of your Mind Apps book, uh, and and by the way, just a, a side note for for listeners: when you go to the trouble of writing a book, it, it takes a huge amount of of organization, almost like this consilience thing we just talked about, in order to to put as much as you, as you can into this because you know that it's going to be at scale. And when you're reading a book from someone who spent 50 years in a field, uh, you're probably going to get something good out of it <laughs> because so. that's what happens when wisdom emerges from time. So th this is a book, if, if you're interested in in the states of mind that are possible, a book that's worth reading. Um, but towards the end of the book, you talk about achieving the philosopher's mind. Uh, what uh -huh. is the philosopher's mind in the way you talk about it here? So let me just cut in and say that I know how much effort goes into writing a book. And when I see a shelf of book, of books, I think about all those authors who yeah. put in so much time. And you think of a library. I mean, it's just an incredible amount of human effort has gone in. Now, um, what was the question again? Uh, the question of, uh, by the way, I, I, I'm 100% oh, with you. It, it's literally many lifetimes. You know, Each book yeah. that you read in you know, four or ten hours is... If it's a halfway decent book, it's at least 2,000 hours of work went into it. Oh, yeah. So well, The Philosopher's Mind. Yeah. The Philosopher's Mind, yeah. So yeah, okay. how does The Philosopher's Mind, towards the end of your book, your Mind Apps book, how do you define that? How do people achieve it? Okay. Well, most philosophy is done in our ordinary mind-body state. I, I call it our default mind-body state. And philosophers basically use thoughts in, in our ordinary cognitive thinking processes. And most philosophy is done in that state and is about that state. And language actually is invented for use in our ordinary state. That's one of the reasons these things are so hard to talk about, because there are other states and our ordinary language doesn't fit very well. So anyway, what I think philosophers need to do is to recognize that, and I mean, philosophy is, is the love of knowledge, and knowledge certainly includes the human mind. And if you want uh, knowledge of the human mind, it should be the knowledge of the human mind in all these mind-body states, not just our ordinary default state. So I think philosophers have to do is to get into different mind-body states and do philosophy about that experience and use those experiences to do philosophy. That's getting to, back to that book that Benny Shannon wrote that I mentioned to you. And so, for example... Let's say, um, I think, therefore I am. Okay, good old Descartes' right. statement. Okay, well, I, the sense of I varies from mind-body state to mind-body state. Thinking certainly varies. Therefore, a logic varies. And there's the I and uh, there's the am. All four of those elements vary from mind-body state to mind-body state. And you can take that model and apply it to all philosophical ideas. So the question then is, how does philosophy vary from mind-body state to mind-body state? And we have some philosophers who looked at that, but not in any sort of systematic way. And I hope what will happen is, as multi-state psychology catches on with the psychologists, philosophers might realize that you can do philosophy in and for different mind-body states too. And you can look at any philosophical idea and ask, how does whatever vary from mind-body state to mind-body state. And not only that, you have hundreds or thousands of different states to consider that in. So philosophy can become an experimental field. Literary criticism is another one. I use Groff's view of the mind to understand film and, 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 and arts. So it's an enormously okay. rich field. And I think philosophers could, could really get into this there was there was due to be a, a conference on psychedelic philosophy at Exeter, Exeter University um, this month, but they had to call it off because of the coronavirus. I'm not sure I understand what's the difference between regular philosophy and psychedelic philosophy, other than well, obviously you ate something before <laughs> before you did the psychedelic version. But one is simply taking other mind body states seriously, like most philosophers take on our ordinary default state seriously. And everything else okay. just sort of discarded as trash or junk or don't waste your time with that. You know, think about, you know, our ordinary state. And what I'm saying is that 
the big shift is recognizing that these other mind-body states, that they do hold knowledge. There's epistemological value. The fact that problems have been solved in this is an example. Mental health problems are an example, but also the problems that I mentioned that Bill Harmon and Jim Fadiman worked on and published in 1966. So there, there's okay. knowledge just about, not only about what the states are, which is interesting, but in how you can use those states to discover different types of knowledge. It, it, it's this idea that the inner state matters, uh, maybe more, uh, maybe more so than a lot of the the hard rationalist uh, philosophy, where it's sort of it's all about thinking sort of the meat robot perspective, uh, and the idea that you know spiritual states and perception really, uh, really does matter. And I, that's something that I appreciate about your your book there, and about a, the whole world of hallucinogens uh, or psychedelics, whatever you want to call them. Uh, it, it's that our uh, what we're thinking, feeling, and experiencing, even if others don't experience at the same time, it matters. And if you incorporate that into philosophy, uh, you might come up with a different philosophy than you otherwise would. Uh, and, well, uh, this brings up a problem that the, the artificial intelligence people have to get at. Basically, what they're trying to do is, uh, is to um, have artificial intelligence do what the human mind can do. But now that we recognize the human mind can work in different mind-body states, Artificial intelligence would have to have different mind-body states too, and mm-hmm. that's what the, that's the direction they've got to go in. What does it mean to give a computer LSD or hypnosis or meditation? Um, is that something that 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 um, can be worked on in ordinary computer sense, rather than just having the computers sort of mimic or or even do better than what we do, but still? try to uh, use the ordinary state as the standard. So what happens with all these other states? For instance, can computers come up with, with pro- ask problems that haven't been asked before? And right. that's what humans can do. And so you think we're going to have problems with uh, AI not able to do that until we achieve the philosophies? Or the well, I tempted mind. to say yes, but I don't know the field. I know the people in the field are doing altered states. Okay. So they must be thinking about this field somehow or other. I'd love to see what they come up with, if I can understand it. I'm not a computer guy, so I don't know if I can understand it. I uh, I understand what you're saying. Now, my, um, my concentration in my undergrad degree was in a form of artificial intelligence. And uh, the people in that field... On weekends, uh, they they are doing things, and I see them at Burning Man, and it's the same for advanced mathematicians and advanced physics and all. Because when you're pushing that yeah. edge of what human humans are aware of now, you sometimes end up here, and sometimes you end up in other yogic positions. But uh, the people who are doing really advanced work somehow are are circling the same tool set in order to do it. And um, you've you spent a lot of time studying that uh, to the point you, I think you know that as well. But I'm uh, I'm really grateful for your work, and it it's an honor to be able to talk to someone uh, who's I would say an elder in the field, uh, and that you've you've had a chance to build up that wisdom over time. You've shared it with countless people. Um, your uh, your latest book, especially, is uh, it's very powerful, just because you've had enough time to distill that knowledge uh, and that wisdom into something that is is worthwhile. Uh, so thank thank you for your your work. Thank uh, you. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for writing. Thanks for teaching. And just thanks for you know, going against the grain and talking about this before it was as acceptable as it is today. So you're uh, you're a luminary in the field, and uh, I'm really happy we got to talk. Thanks. I enjoyed talking with you about it. Nice to talk with somebody who knows the field. Oh, thanks. If you liked today's episode, I think you should check out MindApp. It's a really interesting book, and you don't have to go out and do psychedelics in order to participate in this idea of a MindApp. There are many things you can do with neuroscience, with breathing, with yoga, with ancient techniques, with food, with fasting, with lights, with sound, with drums. So there's all sorts of ways you can modify your state. And if you're stuck at home right now, maybe now is a good time to play with some of those, especially some of the entry-level ones, because otherwise, what else are you going to do? Uh, you're probably going to sit around and just get re-addicted to gluten or something. So there are better <laughs> things for you. <laughs> if you like the episode, please leave a review whether it's for the book because you bought it, for the show itself, uh, or just uh, any other book that you've read, take this extra time while you're at home and just go out there and do the equivalent of leaving a tip for your barista, which you can't do right now anyway. So leave a review for an author because we care about that. Thank you very much for listening. See you soon. A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.